You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Thomas Edison made huge news because it emerged that if anyone wanted to work for Edison's laboratory, they had to pass a test, which consisted of scientific and political and geographic questions that were uh, devised by Edison. There were questions like, uh, what's, what's the percentage of magnetite and magnetite ore? How many states border Kentucky? And he said, these college kids today are stupid. They don't, they don't know anything. A reporter, a wise-ass reporter, comes to Einstein, who is visiting the United States at this time, and asks him, I guess what he calls an Edison test question, which is, what is the speed of sound? <laughs> and he trips up the great Einstein. Einstein's response is, is a very forthright, I don't know. And then he explains, I'm not in the habit of memorizing such things. That's what I have books for. <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So we're really pleased to have John Blackwell on today. He's the senior publishing editor for the Wall Street Journal. He's also worked with the Daily News and other places. The reason we're talking to him today is that he hosts This Day in 1921 on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, he's at at 100 years ago news. At 100 years ago news. What he's done is amazing. He's got a complete catalog the whole year of daily news stories from 1921. And I did a podcast about this earlier in the year, and I barely touched the surface. So, John, you are, what's the best way to describe it? You're doing a thing on Twitter this year where you're looking at the stories of the day for 1921, 100 years ago. Yeah, you could see it as sort of like day-to-day coverage. Here's the news as it happened. Uh, here's the political developments of the day, the congressional votes, wars overseas, disasters, sports scores, sort of like you're reading it from a daily paper, but with the you know perspective of 100 years back. So we'll also have uh, famous people being born on this day, which obviously a reporter of the time wouldn't have access to, like yeah. Deborah Carr or, uh, or Yves Montand, people like that, famous people born 100 years ago, the state. Besides just being a hundred years ago, it appears to be a very interesting year after World War One, and then a recession and a kind of like struggling time. You did focus on this. It's an amazingly probably little known thing from the time is how bad the economy was, because we think of roaring 20s, fun, jazz. And a lot of that's certainly true, because a lot of the commentary is these kids and how much fun they're having and how... Uh, absurdly short these dresses are and these crazy jazz dances but uh the economy is terrible it's they're using the word depression in fact i i guess it didn't i was surprised to see it didn't quite have the same 
horrifying connotations. Prussian is was intended to be a calmer term that if you look at a chart and you look at a line on a chart and it just slightly goes down, that's just a depression. Right. And the word unemployment, though, that you will see a lot. And there's uh, a real concern. This is not a hidden problem. Uh, in New York, there's stories almost every day about the unemployment problem, about people sleeping on park benches, people out of work, a very like a moral problem because so many of them are veterans, people who fought in the war, who may have lost a leg or a limb, and they just can't get a job. And is this fair? Uh, people say, no, it's not fair. There was a very little known, another little known fact, a war in Morocco, where Spain lost something like 10,000 troops in a single battle to the uh, Moroccans. And they were in desperate need of troops. They uh, started to enlist people for the Spanish Foreign Legion. And outside the Spanish consulate in New York, hordes of people line up looking for, to, to enlist in the Spanish wow. Foreign Legion so that they can get paid. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I had like no idea. No yeah, idea. There's like publicity stunts or like demonstrations for the unemployed. There's a character who seems to show up in the headlines every day. And now he's completely forgotten. His name was Urbane Ledoux. And he called himself Mr. Zero for reasons I'm really not sure about. But he, uh, in Boston, held a, a, what he called a slave auction. He actually used that word, would uh, auction people off because they were unemployed, auction them so that they could have a job. Someone would pay them and uh, they would take their shirts off and like just show that uh, they were skinny, but like able to work. They, they were like uh, well muscled. This like shocked the consciences of, of Boston, and he wanted to go to New York and repeat the stunt. And the New York authorities, plus the labor union, said, absolutely no way. No way. We will run you out of town if you try this. You look at something like COBRA or, or unemployment insurance, Social Security. You know, and there can be debates about how much we spend, how long it goes for, of course. But not having them at all, you see what happened in the past. And uh, I did one on um, President Doesn't Create Jobs, and I talked about the history mm -hmm. of jobs being even a political issue because in the 19th century, at least in the 20s, you're seeing they're talking about it. In the 19th century, it wasn't even something that a national politician would talk about. You could say it, uh, it almost veers into victim blaming at a certain point because there's cartoons that sort of show like the ant and the grasshopper, like the the worker who had a, a really good time of high wages and prosperity during the war, during World War One. Now times are scarce, but they've spent it all. So they're saying it's, oh, it's, yeah, it's, always it's the unemployed fault. person's yeah. problem. <laughs> it is interesting, a yeah. little back in the napkin, that President Harding calls a national unemployment conference on August 28, 1921, with representatives from business and labor, and says that, and this is from the government, which means it probably could be more, uh, over 5.7 million people are out without a job, according to the Labor Department. And you got about 108, I'm figuring, minimum 20% children, probably more at that time. So you were talking about more than 10% of the workforce unemployed, just back of the napkin. Economists have also surveyed this time, and they found about that, what you said, 10%. Uh, you don't see any estimate about percentages in 1921. I guess, again, that didn't... But the departments are starting. Herbert Hoover is the one in charge of the Commerce Department. He's starting some of this, even trying to calculate it at all. Um, he is. Yeah, give the guy credit, right? <laughs> and uh, a, a fascinating thing is he, he is that unemployment conference you mentioned. He's the man in charge of it. 
And a lot of what he's doing is like collating information. And you can, he can maybe be forgiven for thinking that he was doing a great job during the Great Depression because in 1921, uh, or at least in later 1921, things did get better. We obviously did have prosperity in the 20s. In fact, uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but earlier in 21, Herbert Hoover himself is quoted saying something to the effect of, we're about to turn the corner. <laughs> which gives you like what's the opposite of deja vu it's yeah, like a, a preview of what he's about to say when he becomes president only in this case he's validating so i i noticed a story from august 27th 1921 where arrest for drunkenness rose 34 percent in the first fiscal year since prohibition became law in the district of columbia an official warns that hair tonic flavoring extracts medicines and the poisonous wood alcohol are being drunk more commonly. It is, uh, it is amazing. Like, again, like people like probably still scratching their heads over just how did we get into prohibition anyway? It seems kind of insane. And in 1921, they know it, or at least the newspapers know it because it is covered with this, uh, almost deadpan. You can't be serious that this is the law. Uh, one of my favorite accounts was how, uh, someone was arrested at a, at a, I don't know if it was a bar or a speakeasy or a, just a general nightclub where he was drinking. And, um, uh, he was a noted, I guess, movie director of the time. Don't remember his name, but he's, um, um, he and his friend are passing a bottle back and forth basically as the, uh, the prohibition agents are trying to figure out who to arrest because who's drinking the bottle. And these two guys are basically, uh, each volunteering to get, uh, to get arrested doing like an Alphonse and Gaston, uh, <laughs> effort because they want to, someone wants to be, you know, the, uh, be the, uh, the gentleman here. And finally, one of them allows himself to be arrested. And as he's escorted out, he is applauded by everybody in that, in that club. And that just goes to show you that, that there is simply no public support for this. Uh, another good one, I'm just looking this up because it's going to be in October and we're not in October yet, but the, the World Series, by the way, this is also the very first year there's an all New York World Series. It's the Giants and the Yankees. Uh, we wouldn't call it a subway series because they were playing in the same park, the polo grounds that game five or six, a squad of prohibition officers comes in basically saying, well, we're here to enforce the prohibition laws to make sure the fans aren't uh, sneaking in flasks or bottles. And the ticket takers say, uh, no, you can't come in here unless you have a ticket. Your badge is not good enough. And they too have to, they get shown the door and the fans just jeer and jeer and are laughing very hard. It is not a popular law. Politics, see, it's seen as dry and wet. And the way politics would shape up, and you see several instances of this, would really be something more like dry, wet, mild. And you have figures like Coolidge. Yeah, put Hoover there, too, where it's like, well, we're not going to be into, you know, I'm not going to be a wet. But I'm also just going to keep this current level of enforcement that 
wink nod we all know isn't really working where there were some people who wanted to go the you know the only reason that failed is that the enforcement wasn't good i'm noticing again you know i just keep going back to august but i think almost one month's enough or maybe because it's hot in august that's a lot going on soviet russia relaxes its world war one era ban on 14 percent or stronger alcohol so while u.s is banning alcohol the bolsheviks are um are you know, relaxing it and relaxing the ban. And the Bolsheviks had been puritanical in their attitude to drinking. Yeah, a bit of a surprise for me to learn that, too. I, I did not know <laughs> they had such a bug up <laughs> about, the, about the thing. But yes, they did relax it. And I think uh, they probably profited tremendously from it because, uh, they again, they needed their economy to improve. I would go all the way to the end of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was funded. By excise taxes, the, the 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 actual union government was funded by excise taxes and a few other things. And Gorbachev would would disastrously uh, try a prohibition crusade and and actually sort of led to the. So that thing goes all the way all the way to the end. I also note on this related thing here, uh, and I guess we just kind of jump around because I don't know if we'll get to a top ten fully, but some states have enacted smoking bans this year. But they're going against the tide as the tobacco industry gains clout and as a backlash forms against prohibition. Um, North Dakota became the second state in March, uh, the second state to forbid cigarette smoking in public places, banning the habit in restaurants and trains. Utah also enacted such a measure and anti but it goes along with this anti-tobacco laws are ridiculed even more than prohibition is they are you could say they got their order mixed up <laughs> as far as which is which is more dangerous uh but by, yeah by the time prohibition has come i don't think uh the american people are have any kind of appetite for more for more prohibition yeah you see a lot of like and this is so reminiscent of today you see a lot of like People insulting it, like Reed Smoot, senator from Utah, says we're going to have a generation of dudes and nincompoops <laughs> if smoking is banned. Now, maybe maybe he was right. I don't know. Are we all dudes yeah. and nincompoops? And North Dakota actually repeals its ban under pressure from some of these kind of libertarian efforts in 1925. Right. Those smoking bans certainly didn't go anywhere totally against the tide. And there's some uh, few items from both, I think, the U.S. and from Europe that take note of women are smoking more. That is a pure marketing move by the tobacco companies to sell cigarettes to women. And the odd tone of the stories is they don't, they certainly don't think this is a good thing because everyone kind of knows in the back of their head, even if they don't know exactly what it is about tobacco, that's, that's, that can kill you, that it isn't, that it can kill you. But they know when they're talking about the fact that so many more cigarette sales are now going to women and that they're becoming customers is that it's the women's fault <laughs> that the idea of advertising as a phenomenon, as like a causing agent isn't quite there. But on, as part of your project, it's, it's just amazing, by the way, reading some of the tweets and seeing some of those stories. We could kind of do a roll off of top 10. Or just, or just talk about a bunch of them. If we were to draw our own top 10 list of the biggest things, it's going to definitely differ from what they would have seen in 1921. And I think maybe the, the best example of that is Tulsa, the, uh, the race massacre mm -hmm. of Tulsa. Mm -hmm. we, we call it a race massacre because it was a race massacre. In 1921, no, it's, it's called a riot. Uh, 
And although it's a very big story, it makes front page headlines across the country, but then it's kind of forgotten about within one or two days and the country moves on. And now we think of it as sort of a defining moment of, uh, of like post world war one, uh, racial hatred and just the extreme lengths the, you know, the white establishment would go to keep black people in their place. It's just a horrific death toll. The official toll is 39. We now think it's probably in the hundreds, maybe the worst race violence in American history. And just reading the accounts, we kind of know if you paid attention during the anniversary about the toll, about the fact that so many lives were ended, property was destroyed, thriving community. It was known as Black Wall Street was burned down, destroyed. But what's kind of like maybe even infuriating is the word is how much to use the modern term, it's getting both sides. The coverage is, oh, it's so terrible what these white rioters did in this neighborhood. But, oh, it's so terrible how the black people started the whole thing. Here's how the New York Times covers the Tulsa incident in 1921. Yeah, this is the New York Times. The bloody race riot at Tulsa began with a shot fired by a black person in an automobile at a police officer. It ended with the burning of the black quarter of town and the killing 15 black and nine white men. Property losses estimated at 1.5 million. Tulsa will have to pay heavily for hatred between the races and for the feebleness of its police force. So a really biased and inaccurate interpretation, everything from who started it to the death count, inaccurate interpretation of the events of Tulsa from the New York Times. And when they're saying that the black right. people started it, what they're referring to is uh, the fact that armed black men drove to a courthouse where a black prisoner was being kept and being threatened with lynching for something he didn't do, which was, uh, you know, an alleged sexual assault on a white woman that wasn't an assault and wasn't sexual. I mean, it seems like uh, the consensus seems to be she, he stepped on her foot in the elevator. Yeah, the, the, uh, just uh, basically tripped or got, maybe got too close to her. She didn't really pursue it much more than that. Yeah, this girl totally did not pursue it. Uh, and what's more... Not only was the lynching, <laughs> the attempt at lynching, which was a mob of white people outside the courthouse in Tulsa, it wasn't successful. But not only that, the uh, the police never actually charged him with a thing. They let him go a few days or a few weeks later. Mm -hmm. And he's uh, whatever happened to him in history is kind of lost. We don't know what, what became of him. I don't I believe we don't even know what became of the uh, the girl in the elevator. We do know a lot about, you know, the survivors of Tulsa itself because we're still hearing testimony from them 100 years later. That's And yeah, I think you're I think you're right that we in 2021 would probably rank that first. And now um really it's just been in the past few years that you've you we talk a lot about it and it's a the uh, and it's hard uh also to separate it from how much extreme racial violence was going on at the time mm -hmm. that was I guess routinized almost now Every almost every week there's a lynching, and I don't know the raw numbers. It's you could become jaded about that. I mean, they were covered. Every, just about every lynching is mentioned in the newspapers. They are they are a story, but they sort of follow the same pattern. And uh, sadly, it's like you can read these accounts and you realize just on the face of it, the guy they lynched isn't guilty of anything. Why don't we jump into the uh, if you kind of have a top ten? Sure. 
Well, I think it would be unfair to not mention Russia in 1921. Mm -hmm. From a world perspective, maybe this is the single greatest tragedy. I mean, and it was an entirely a man-made famine. It was the new communist regime just essentially stealing the grain and the produce of their regions uh, of Russia's breadbasket in the Volga and region and other regions in southern Russia, starving the peasants. And at this time, they didn't actually set out to starve and kill peasants the way Stalin would, but just disastrously mismanaged everything. Because they're pulling from the people making the grain to their favored people, which would have been like the, the Bolsheviks in, in the army, the, the, the political folks. Yeah, exactly. And they had essentially almost deliberately sabotaged their own economy by, by uh, declaring that there's no, there's no money. There's uh, <laughs> everything's in kind. And it just, they turned the economy into chaos by that. So the result of this, and they should have seen it, it was coming, you know, for more than a year ahead with the, the peasants deciding not to plant grain was a big famine that the death toll is still disputed. It's definitely well over a million people dead. Lenin has to bring in, basically has to get the United States to rescue him or the United States on the West. They do so through a relief agency, the American Relief Administration, which is run by, here's our old friend again, Herbert Hoover, is the man who dispatches them and organizes the effort. He's a pretty big lifesaver. And again, this is a, a very big story in American papers. And they do have compassion for the Russians. But mm-hmm. a lot of it is framed through, I mean, they are correct. This is a big disaster on the part of the communist government. But there's a lot of wishful thinking. Well, they're going to fall now. This is the end of it. A lot of speculation about what form the government after Lenin's going to, another czar, is it going to be uh, a counter-revolutionary army or a white army? It's almost taken for granted he can't survive it. Of course he does. This is, uh, and I probably should mention the other big event in Russia, is the Kronstadt Rebellion, where basically a fortress, the whole Baltic fleet of the, of the uh, Soviet state, rebels and says, we don't recognize this Bolshevik government as real. We want a real workers government. And we're going to support the workers of Petrograd, which is modern day St. Petersburg. They thought just by declaring this and by proclaiming like a workers uprising that uh, Lenin was going to fall. Again, he looked pretty weak. He, uh, his mm. economy was, the economy was complete shambles. It's a big country where revolutions like this are seeming to happen with some regularity. But of course, Lenin is, is a lot more bloody minded than they are. He just absolutely crushes them. And uh, that rebellion is over. I think they were hoping for some foreign support. And I think they were hoping for workers to rebel in their name, you know, to take to the yeah. streets. And, and, and that didn't quite. I don't think they wanted any foreign support. But that was oh. a big talking point on Lenin and Trotsky's part was that they are. Uh, OK, they are backed by the French. I don't know why he picked on the French, but <laughs> they basically made up uh, a line that said the French and the and maybe some British are counter-revolutionaries supporting them. They did a lot of show trials where they would force people to confess to being counter-revolutionaries, and they they were they were they were actually like uh, uh, believing Marxists who actually believed in uh, the promises of land reform and worker control of, of the country. That's all interesting. I, I noted in, in my other cast, I believe, in two interesting corollaries to this. One was that, so Lenin's brain gets examined in London because they have a sculpturist who, who made a mold of his brain. And so they have a phrenologist examine him and find <laughs> that he's got all kinds of problems. Surprise, surprise, you know. 
And then, uh, and you know, it'll turn out to be somewhat real because I believe his final act in 1921 is, and I, and I hope it's not one of your top 10. I'm sorry again, but that is Lenin will ask for a vacation from the Politburo and it will be, no, will be eventually granted <laughs> because he's under such stress. I never knew this. I know that he does have a, a stroke very soon after this. He's running the country. They're all looking to him for decisions, and the decisions aren't easy, including the one you mentioned, like the, to seek out international support, very controversial. Uh, there'll be a lot of politics around that. They'll, 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 uh, start to like stigmatize even the people who are working with that American operation. And, and even though right. they'll take the grain, thank you very much. It's like you, <laughs> you're also kind of like, well, we have to watch these people. There's, uh, and there's certainly that fear is present in the establishment and the way, the way the events of, of, uh, of labor unions, strikes mm-hmm. and, uh, race relations are being covered. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> the Bolsheviks are behind it all. They're behind all the problems. They sort of shift, uh, the focus where during World War One, it was the Germans and Kaiserism is the enemy. It's, they sort of, Mix the two, and, and then by 1921, it's decisively it's it's the Bolsheviks. In fact, there's a an amazing Los Angeles Times story from just about two days after the Tulsa riots that, with a straight face, with basically no sourcing, just simply states as a fact that the Tulsa riots were caused by Bolsheviks. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and again, no sourcing, but the, the idea behind it is because of Bolshevism. Uh, black people have got the idea that they are the social equal of white, which that was a radical belief of the time, a belief in uh, racial equality. Certainly, uh, 100 years ago, I, I did note that one of your stories in August that I had down there, W.E. Du Bois has a uh, conference and is an attempt to spread that idea, an attempt to really get the message out about um, world equality. And asks, ah, the second Pan-American Congress held in London issues a manifesto calling for absolute racial equality. They attempt to get Colonial Secretary Winston Churchill to attend, but his office politely declines. There are people there from Jamaica, Liberia, Sierra Leone, South Africa, Grenada, um, Gold Coast, British Guiana, and also from African Americans. And even though it's kind of easy to say, oh, it was a different time and nobody was thinking these things then, but there was a fight. There was a struggle. Was. This would have been a very uh, radical position, but you see the ideas introduced. For the British, an even more vivid example of this would be what's happening in India in 1921. This is, I think it's, it's the year in which Gandhi first becomes a headline name. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, I found a, like a Sunday uh, pictorial feature on Gandhi that uh, basically calls him like just this, <laughs> a weird fakir who, uh, <laughs> who threatens, uh, who wants to like revolutionize India. The picture of him isn't quite like the, the whole, the, the sweet holy man that we see now. He, he really was a revolutionary. And uh, part of that idea is, in fact, yeah, racial equality. The Indians deserve to rule India. And uh, I guess tragically, from the, a view 100 years back, is there seems to be, uh, at least among the, uh, if you call the native Indian leadership, uh, a real also belief in religious equality, that Muslims and Hindus are, are united, uh, a united front. Hin- uh, Muslims are getting arrested along with Hindus for seeking 
independence or at least seeking um, economic self-sufficiency in India. A very forgotten story, but not, not forgotten in India is a very bloody rebellion that breaks out also in August that's called the Mapala Rebellion. A people I'd never heard of before, the Mapala Muslims of the Arabian Sea coast uh, near where Kerala is. They launched a massive rebellion against British rule basically ruled half of a province of India for a few months before the rebellion was crushed and probably a very high death toll. Again, I'm not sure how much it would be, but sadly it was marked by very bloody uh, sectarian warfare where uh, Muslims would massacre Hindus, Hindus would uh, be forcibly converted, you know, a lot of messiness that went on there. What what else strikes you as a, as a really good story of note? I think we should probably talk about Fatty Arbuckle. September 11th, 1921, Roscoe Arbuckle faces an inquiry on woman's death. The police announced today that they would take into custody Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, motion picture comedian, who arrived from Los Angeles today by automobile to clear up an affair at his suite in a hotel here last Monday, following which the death of Miss Virginia Rapp, a film actress, is said to have occurred. Arbuckle will be taken into custody by the police that is announced pending an investigation into the woman's death. No charge will be placed against him, according to Michael Griffin, acting captain of the detectives, but he will be detained until after the inquest. Arbuckle arrived here by automobile this afternoon from Los Angeles to assist the authorities in clearing the mystery. Uh, oh, sure. That is definitely the biggest, I guess, if, if there was such a thing as tabloid, that would be the big tabloid story of the day. Yeah, Fatty Arbuckle is this really big film icon. He's got a $3 million contract, which at that time was an awful lot of money. We're still in the silent era of films. And uh, I guess um, he he and some young ladies, some other film people, go from Los Angeles up to uh, to San Francisco for... Yes. And whatever happened there is hotly disputed because, of course, it ends in a death and Fatty Arbuckle's freedom is at stake here. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you. 
and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. The best way I think we can piece it together is that a lot of people got drunk. The actress in question, her name was Virginia Rapp, she may have drank too much. She probably had some sort of bladder condition or and became very ill and upset during this party. She had to retire to a bedroom where she was like moaning, screaming in pain. Arbuckle may have been in the bedroom. That's disputed. A lot of stories changed from the witnesses. But the upshot of it is this party was once once it became clear that Rap was in bad shape, she was Arbuckle helped send her off to uh, to another room so that she could be uh, she could recover, got doctors for her. They really didn't know what was wrong with her. And she dies five days later of peritonitis. He is arrested very quickly for manslaughter, but it's not clear how he supposedly caused her death. There's one witness who brought Virginia Rapp to the party who insists that Arbuckle went into that room with Rapp. He said uh, that she said something to the effect of, uh, he did it, he did it. She's hearing things out of the room. And that he said something like, I've always wanted to be with you, or I've always wanted to do this, like very leering and villainous. But this turned out to be an extremely unreliable witness. She uh, mm. seemed to have like a, a record of, of blackmail or other unsavory. And the prosecution just could not use her as a witness in the, in the upcoming trial. So a lot of the association he gets with maybe causing her death comes from this one witness. Most of the other witnesses saw nothing like that. Uh, but there is one very vivid um, bit of testimony which uh, involves Arbuckle allegedly putting a putting a piece of ice on her uh, genitalia. That sounds pretty horrible, and that's it was so horrible sounding that newspapers couldn't print it. They would just refer to it as Arbuckle's torturing her with ice. But what apparently he did, or what the witnesses said he did, because we don't know what he thinks about what he said about it, was that he was using the ice on her belly and maybe on her lower region to relieve the pain as she was screaming. Mm-hmm. But it certainly doesn't doesn't sound good in a newspaper in 1921. Whatever whatever the court verdict was going to be, his career was doomed. His 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 movies are canceled. All the showings are. He's acquitted. He is acquitted. I think he got. I think he went through two different trials. There was a, a hung jury, second trial. Not only was he acquitted, but the jury made a speech declaring that he was a totally innocent man, that he'd been wronged, and that it was outrageous that the case should have gone forward. That's the. That's the consensus view of people who look back on it. Unfortunately, a lot of what happened in Arbuckle's defense was to smear Virginia Rapp, who, mm-hmm. you know, was the victim here, after all. Whether she was the victim of a crime, we don't really know. But she's often sort of portrayed as this may have tried to, like, uh, sleep around to get ahead, that she... Uh... Uh, it is interesting. I know you, you indicated, too, and I, I really consider you must remember this to be the source on a lot of things, especially if we go Hollywood and Karina Longworth does a great, the podcast, she does a, a great episode on this. So probably we'll, we'll uh, refer you to a specialist uh, audience on that one. But mm-hmm. um, I do know that, you know, as a result of this, and she gets into it as a result of this, Hollywood is slammed with um, special codes with a special enforcement officer reviewing movies. And it really leads to a lot of 
a lot more restrictions on Hollywood yes. because of this scandal. A lot of this was probably going to happen anyway, because again, uh, things I didn't know <laughs> until I started doing the project and reading the papers was film censorship was happening. It was happening on the local level. It was happening on the state level. And <laughs> New York of all, of all places, New York created a film censorship board early 1921. And they would actually review all movies. They passed like the very first films and then they objected without being clear on what they were objecting to. This was happening on a local level, like I said, and Hollywood basically had to do something. They couldn't just let this, their films get chopped up on, on such a basis. So they were going to probably do a, a internal censorship or a, a film czar, which is what they ended up creating to straighten this whole situation out. Another interesting thing is I was able, I have access to a lot of British and Australian newspapers too. And the coverage is, is broadly similar. Only there it's, it's complicated with the fact that not only is the movies, the way kids, the kids today are seeing movies and they, they seem to show immorality and, and fast cars and women and, and uh, exciting gangsters and crime. But there's also the cultural aspect that it's, it's all American movies and people, uh, in Australia. Uh, at like a, basically like a variant of a PTA meeting in, in the summer of 1921 are complaining that this is basically cultural imperialism. It's all American. Where are the Australian movies? Where are the British movies? That That's an export of America that, uh, we're, we're, it, it, it's there, but we're not always aware of it is that we just run the entertainment for the world and always have since then. And, you know, a lot of people, this is an interesting side note, but, <laughs> Why not? Um, it's a lot of people will say, like, where'd the Kennedys get their money? And you can talk about bootlegging or whatever. There's really no evidence that the father was actually a bootlegger. And they make it in a couple of places. Well, if he wasn't a bootlegger, he was a stock bumper. <laughs> so that's a big part of how he made his money, you know, selling selling stocks and then getting the price to uh, drive up. And then the other is, um, you know, before it was all regulated, um, the Merchant Mart in, the Merchant Mart in Chicago, that big building. Um, they were the owners and made a ton of money off that. And then, um, selling movies to England. They, Kennedy was the importer of movies to Britain. And so that, that's a huge industry. And that's how the Kennedy family made a lot of their money with that license to, to sell Hollywood to, uh, to across the world. But yeah. We forget about it as an export. Well, that's interesting. You bring up Kennedy too. There's a, a little item in a, a Boston Globe. I think it's oh. <laughs> June or May, which is the birth of. Uh, Eunice Kennedy, but it, it's reported because basically yeah. her from her it's her uh, mother's line that's more famous at the time. Joe Kennedy's not not a famous person, but her her grandfather, uh, of course, is uh, yes, Honey Fitz, the former mayor of Boston, very big personality. Mass demonstrations in all parts of the United States, similar to those in European cities, to express indignation against the impending fate of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzelli, the two Italian labor organizers whose murder appeal will be decided by the Appellate Court of Massachusetts on December 1st, are being planned by communists and other radical organizations. Announcement of the plan was made last night by the Workers' Defense Union, the Italian Committee for Defense of Political Prisoners, the American Labor Alliance, and other organizations after a conference, 201 West 13th Street, in New York City. The conference, which was called by the Labor Alliance, was said to have drafted plans for protests, equaling those in Paris, Rome, and other cities. 
This fight to save Sacco and Vanzetti is one of the most urgent tasks before the organized labor movement, said Art Shields at the Workers' Defense Union last night. This case not only puts American justice on trial, it represents a savage attack on the labor movement. It is significant that the newspapers crying for their execution say very little about the evidence against them, but harp on the fact that they were radicals. New York Times, October 31st, 1921. Uh, in interesting, Massachusetts. I'll mention mm-hmm. another one because this was not. Uh, this doesn't quite become a huge, huge national story. I think until later in the 20s. But Sacco and Vanzetti's trial happens in 1921. It happens uh, through I think June and July. It's a very long trial because it's so complicated. What happened? Uh, I won't. Uh, <laughs> I won't go through all the details because even I'm not sure of all the details, but it involved two two men, uh, Italians, who rob a, a paymaster, shoot two guards dead, and get away with a lot of money. Uh, the police round up Sacco and Vanzetti because they're very well-known anarchists in uh, this area of Massachusetts. And there's a very long trial. Uh, because the evidence is super complicated. There's no direct evidence. There's no direct physical evidence, I believe, that connects them. There's some shaky witness testimony. Uh, but it does come down that they are guilty. And it is, in fact, protested. There are uh, representatives from the ACLU at their trial who try to make a big stink out of it. But it's not overwhelming big national news yet, because I think what it takes is for the world to get involved, that uh, socialist movements and labor movements and anarchists uh, try to really publicize this case as an example of. Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly, yeah, we don't know. Uh, there's a lot of thought. Still don't really know whether one, maybe one of them did it and the other didn't. Maybe it was another gang in the operating in the area. A lot of things it could have been. There was, uh, I think, reading, and I, uh, I'm not going to claim that I, have read the transcript or know much like all the details of the, of the trial. They definitely went out of their way to tell the jury, uh, we are not asking you to convict them because they are radical. That has nothing to do with this case. They didn't want to bring it up, but the judge in his instructions to the jury said something like, be good, loyal American soldiers, like you were fighting the Kaiser and, and do justice. Something odd like that. Like uh, it was a metaphor that involved the pursuit of justice, not like not to be anti-radical, but it was certainly like an inflammatory statement that is a very strange thing coming out of a judge's mouth. I don't know if, how relevant this is, but it is just very fascinating to me. There was an incident in the trial, which is almost identical to the, uh, the OJ, if, if, it, uh, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit moment, which is when the prosecution asked Sacco to put on a cap because a cap was found at the, at the scene of the crime, but they said this wasn't, this wasn't his. But they asked him to put it on, and he kept trying to struggle to put it on. But a lot of uh, it, I think, was mm-hmm. very um, contrived, his effort to show that it didn't actually fit. And the jury noticed this. Both those stories, Arbuckle and Sacco and Vanzetti, I was not able to get in the earlier episode. There was so much that happened in 1921. I was There was a death in 1921 that I found very interesting when I looked it up more, and that was Tony Jackson. And Tony Jackson is an American uh, entertainer, pianist. He's African-American, based out of Chicago, is originally from New Orleans. And he was not only gay, but openly gay, which you can imagine 
forget 1921 that's when he dies he's he's his music career is from the 1890s forward he does he's able to do this because he's mostly operating in chicago and there's little more freedom there and he is in the music and entertainment field as a musician entertaining in bars and clubs and the like but he is the songwriter behind the song pretty baby we don't have any recordings of tony jackson except with other people recording his music and probably when i do this podcast i'll have some of I'll have an example of this song, Pretty Baby. Um, but he was writing about another man. And, uh, you know, of course, no one, none of the recordings that are done at the time uh, portray it that way. But he he dies in 1921 and is still extremely influential in um in jazz music circles well the word jazz you're going to see over and over again and uh i guess it's almost taken for granted in the uh the headlines of the time that this is just a weird passing phenomenon like some sort of beatlemania in 1921 and uh one of my one of my favorite articles i found is like the, the teachers convention which was, i guess was actually not a teacher's union but a teacher's association that the state superintendent of education in California would call for the beginning of the school year. And he gives a, a very solemn address about how their responsibilities to teach, you know, civic duties to the kids. And then just almost in passing says like, <laughs> this is going to spell the end of the jazz era. Like Again, taking for granted, this is something weird and, and mindless. Uh, and the, uh, Anything that like anything like close dancing is is it's not only looked upon as something like uh, objectionable, but it's actually banned in some cities. Uh, like Syracuse actually passes a ban on jazz dances, which is, sounds very hard to enforce. Uh, and uh, and you can tell like the newspapers don't know quite what to make of it because they're just constantly using like whatever terms they hear to just mean basically close dancing so like the toddle the shimmy the uh they'll say something (laughs) like the chicago i'm not even sure they know what they're talking about or if these were real dances you see them over and over again uh but on the other hand it's also covered with like a, a very like amused tolerance so you can tell like for all the horror that the educators and the uh the moral reformers are are greeting this that uh it's clearly here to stay. Uh, oh, I'll just mention one of my favorite examples of this, of, of the, the horror with which, you know, the civic leaders are seeing this is uh, someone who explains to them that the shimmy, which is this sort of catch-all term for jazz dancing, uh, was invented by the Incas in 1536 as, as a way to defeat the conquistadors, which, and it's not quite explained how that worked, but uh, it definitely gave you like a negative uh, feeling that this is a very a real societal evil. Oh, there's one that I, again, I, I'm just pulling from one month, but August 3rd, 1921, sparks fly at a Capitol hearing about the Federal Reserve when former comptroller of the currency, John K. Williams, 
and a Fed governor accuse each other of lying, Fed Chairman William P.G. Harding, not related to the president, charges across the committee room, swinging his fist. Uh, orders restored and no one gets punched, but at the bottom of the dispute is the current depression. Williams had accused the Fed of lending at generous terms to New York bankers while imposing punishing rates on farmers and small businesses, and Fed officials calls him all but a demagogue. This goes back to what we were talking about, the depression. The uh, real difference in how you tackle a depression is seeing that the Federal Reserve is, is raising interest rates early in the year. The idea being... Let's bring down prices, cut the, you know, increase the cost of money and get prices down, which, you know, it translates into uh, workers getting their pay cut. It really is driving people uh, to the brink in some cases. And that John Williams would have been from a Democrat and the Federal Reserve were like Republican appointees. Like Williams, it looks like, was appointed um, by Wilson, comes from Virginia. I'm not sure about the party affiliations, but in a lot of cases, these are these are uh, you know cross partisan because there's Democrats from the South who would be outraged about it, but there's uh, uh, also probably Republicans from uh, rural areas who also want like uh, you know uh, more generous lending terms for uh, farmers. Yeah, a monetary policy. It's uh, you know depression era politics. And um, I have a lot on that from the arc of commerce. We have the whole, uh, we did one called Measure This, Measure Commerce. And um, it basically goes through all the measuring. And a lot of it is going to be this decade and the next where you get into this. Yeah. I think uh, in March, very quickly after Harding becomes president, Congress passes what they call the Emergency Immigration Act. And that for the first time ever in U.S. history, puts a limit on immigration. It's a very severe limit. It's 3% of all immigrants who had arrived in the country in 1910. And it's divided by nationality. So it would be only 3% of the number of, say, Italians, or only 3% of the number of Russians can come in. And uh, this is like very broadly popular, mm -hmm. or at least it seems to have got a lot of support in Congress. But uh, first of all, it causes absolute chaos because the shipping lines, I didn't realize this either. Uh, the shipping lines, though, uh, did, either didn't know about it or they started racing their ships to New York Harbor to get in, like, say, before the end of the month so that they could fill their monthly quota. And uh, in some cases, like, the quota was for the year or for the month, and they were, like, getting filled, like, immediately. So people were having to be turned back or deported. Uh and I don't, I guess this is eventually straightened out. I'm not sure how, I guess through, you know, sitting down with the shipping lines and making sure they understood the rules. Yeah, they, I think that in times when um, the, there's a depression, we see this. Uh, this it's, it's like, well, we need more jobs, so limit immigration. And how effective it is, you know, I know that in the 30s, uh, even Franklin Roosevelt was something of a, um, you know, a, for immigration limits, except that he realized that you're going to need certain exceptions, like, for instance, the California Migrant Workers Program, which was accepted from some of those rules. But, um, yeah, I mean, but when, when the economy gets tight, people seem to do that same thing. It's like, let's tighten up. Just like today, right. when we're just dating immigration, there's an economic side, but there's definitely people don't, I guess, the uh, people who are uh, 
very in favor of uh, strong immigration controls would, would even say this, that there's definitely a cultural side and that is disputed as to like, uh, you know, how ugly or how racist that is. But there is that undercurrent. <laughs> it's more, more than just an undercurrent. This belief that immigrants are dirty, that they bring mm-hmm. disease or, and that they bring social revolution that is all out there. That's all open. There was like a, there was episodes of typhus in early 1921 um, among people coming in on ships from Eastern Europe, especially from Poland and from Russia, where again, a lot of this was caused by the disaster in Russia that we talked about earlier, the famine and the civil war. And during the debate over the immigration bill, this is brought up and it's brought up not as a reason to help them, but as a reason to keep them out, that they're disease ridden and that they're bringing disease to, to this country. There is the fact that it's the, the quotas are set at 1910 levels. There was talk about setting them even further back to about 1890, which is what happens later in the decade when they further restrict immigration and they set the quota levels at 1890 levels, which means a far lower percentage of Italians, Russians, Eastern Europeans are going to come into the country. Now, what they're obviously doing is they're trying to you know, they're trying to set the demographics back so that uh, we're more, a more a white, a Protestant country, and pretty explicitly. One fascinating thing I found around, again, around this time, around September, was a Rosh Hashanah sermon by a rabbi in New York who actually denounces this immigration quota law. And this is kind of a standout thing for him because a lot of American Jews will, will keep mm-hmm. quiet. They're here. They're safe. They don't want to make any waves. They're good Americans. But, the, but this rabbi says, this is a shameful measure and blood is on their hands because Jews are going to be massacred. Yeah, I mean, it just, these laws are still in place when we reach the crisis period of uh, pre-World War II. Let's see. I think we probably have time for one more, but then we should probably close out. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face Off launches... April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What's probably the biggest story we left untouched? Let's see. Uh, The Ku Klux Klan is, it's not founded in 1921. It goes back to around 1915 in the movie The Birth of a Nation, which helps revive what they call the modern Klan. But I think 1921 is... It's probably the first year it starts making headlines on a daily basis because there are there's secret clan rallies. They don't get photographed much. You're not going to see many photographs of them because they are at this point, they are, in fact, a secret order. But then I guess what happens is the uh, the clan, which is based in Atlanta, uh, starts to see this is a money making opportunity. And they start forming chapters all across the country where. You know, membership dues, like something like four dollars out of every ten dollars of membership dues goes right into the pocket of their publicity director. And it becomes something like a pyramid scheme where, you know, you can like enlist a member and get more money that way. Uh, but while while all this is going on, I think there's just a general vigilanteism, which we talked about sort of in the lynching episodes, but they don't always take the form of lynching. They can take the form of uh Night riding, you know, people uh, going in and sometimes expelling like entire minority communities. This seems to happen with a shocking regularity in uh, Pennsylvania. There's an episode where uh, a bunch of townspeople like drive out the entire Italian section of of a town. Oh yeah, I mean, I think the Twenties Clan is very much um, anti-Italian and anti-Catholic. Yeah, but these are these aren't Klansmen. These are just the people oh, I of the see. town. Yes, They're doing yes, it openly gotcha. without masks. Uh, in California, there's uh, uh, Japanese fruit growers, and they have their own like they own their own farms. They sell their products, but they're selling it at a at a lower price than the white farmers are. The white farmers just gather together and expel them from their farms, kick them out. This becomes an international incident, uh, and they have to back down because, of course. You, uh, because that's interfering with the economy. <laughs> uh, this is happening to some Mexicans in Texas. It's happening to, uh, well, it's happening to black people all over. In some cases, they're just wearing masks because they don't want to be identified. Oh, I have to tell you about this. Sure. Uh, this is pretty gruesome. Uh, they're probably Klansmen, but the stories never actually use the word Klan. They just call them uh, masked mm-hmm. men. And one of things that the Ku Klux Klan was doing, they were enforcing, you know, morality. They would pick on someone who was known to be immoral. And often this was a white person who maybe had relations with black people, whether maybe he had a black girlfriend, maybe visited like a black roadhouse or a music hall or something, or was known to cheat on their wife, or maybe would, they would call a sexual deviant and they would run them out of town, tar and feather them, or do sometimes more extreme there's a fellow named McGee somewhere outside Houston who I guess was a, uh, again, you have to read that it's reported very obliquely because these are to the 1921 very shocking details, but he apparently exposes himself to children on a playground. And uh, he is taken out of town by masked men. And the report says he is reported to have been placed in the hands of a surgeon who is said to have rendered repetition of his offense impossible. Ah. So, yeah, we, we know what that means. Uh, yeah, I think you had and, this uh, vigilanteism, like Dallas. We talked about Houston there. I think Dallas, for instance, just controlled 
by the clan during this period, but in a very quiet, well, that's the way they were, in a very like secretive way where the business <laughs> community is totally behind it. And, and even using it to their advantage of anybody else that would try to come in on their, their turf, so to speak. Yeah. They would often, uh, they seem to play, play a cute game sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like they would say, Oh, I'm not with the mm-hmm. clan at all, but I support what they're doing. <laughs> uh, so that was a way of like not being, you know, you're not a, a member of a criminal organization. You're going to have in 1924 at the Republican convention a few years later, you're going to have the VP candidate nearly picked by the Klan. Nearly picked, except that once it got out that the Klan had endorsed him, he had to protest. I don't want this endorsement. I don't want this. You're going to ruin me and everything <laughs> like this. And and then finally, the head of the Klan, who was there in Cleveland at the convention, not at the convention floor, but in a house on Euclid Avenue nearby, making all kinds of press statements. He's the one who eventually says, we don't have any endorsements. And and then they go to Dawes. You know, you just have, yeah, this game that's played. Um, I did want to say it's so negative. I did have a positive one that I see August 26, 1921. Wesley Redding is promoted to be the first black detective in the history of the New York Police Department. He has been a patrolman at the West 135th Station for 18 months. Uh, hopefully you see a little bit of there's some uh, yeah there's some great stories you could say there's uh in early 1921 the uh i guess i think it's called the theaters guild of new york they named the best actor of the year and it's charles gilpin a black actor who was the uh the title role of the emperor jones the eugene o'neill play and this uh this calls us something of a stir because that's that's kind of a, a remarkable thing and there's even you know, 1921 being 1921, there's talk, oh, will this be an integrated award ceremony? Which, which it is. 1921, it's also the year Bessie Coleman becomes the first black woman pilot to have a license. She gets it in France because there's no pilot school in the U.S. that's willing to take her. And she comes back. Her arrival in the U.S. is actually noted with, with, with newspaper stories that marvel that she's she's a real pilot. And she does barnstorming, uh, not only does barnstorming, but also like tries to teach uh, young black kids about aviation. Um, what starts out as uh, a nice, <laughs> nice story takes a, a unfortunate like curve, which is President Harden, the, the new president. He nominates a black man to be the uh Register of the Treasury, said Henry Johnson, as Register of the Treasury. He's like certainly perfectly well qualified. He has like, uh, he's worked in Washington for, I guess, like 20 years in the Treasury. But this is, this is now a new era because of the segregation of the office buildings that began under Wilson. The idea that, oh my God, a black man is going to work in the same office as white women. This is like the excuse that's used to actually derail his nomination. And he does not in fact, get confirmed to the job. I'm not sure he even comes to a vote, but the nomination is withdrawn. So at the same time we were talking about the first black detective appointed, there is already on the force uh, a woman detective in New York City, and she is featured in an article in 1921. She gets media coverage in 1921. That's Isabella Goodwin. She starts as a um, scrub woman, um cleaning jail cells, supervising inmates. And as she says um, in an interview in the Brooklyn Eagle, um, she's able to turn it around. A woman joining the department, you know, had to take whatever job you could get and then finagle it into something else. 
but she becomes a um, useful in a role for dealing with any female crime victims, for sex crime cases, for doing certain undercover work. And she's very useful in solving a bank heist and uh, gets a lot of uh, gets a lot of uh, credit for that. Um, she could pose as an, and expose as what she called fakers, fortune tellers, supposed healers, other swindlers that might prey on women. Um, there is many a six foot detective with a gun on his hip who does less valuable work for his three thousand three hundred a year than Miss Goodwin said the New York Herald in 1921. A Harvard student, and he broke the uh, world record in the long jump. It's a guy named uh, Edward Gordon. He was uh, in uh, July 1921, 25 feet, three inches. And he uh, he did it at a kind of an unusual uh, event that I didn't know existed. It was like Harvard combining with Yale to... Uh, have a track meet against Oxford combined with Cambridge (laughs) in which uh, the U.S. won. And uh, Gordon, he actually uh, goes on to become uh, a lawyer in Massachusetts and a judge, and he's the first black judge on the Massachusetts Superior Court. Oh, that's great. You know, one thing that I did mention on a cast, but it was only on the Patreon, that I think is really important for 1921, maybe a good way to end out, you have Einstein wins the Nobel Peace Prize for Physics. He doesn't get the award until 22, but this is the year he wins it. Oh, yeah, and he makes his big U.S. visit in 1920. His big visit and his ideas are of relativity. He actually wins for an issue that's not relativity, because relativity is pretty controversial. Something electro... Yeah, photoelectric effect, right? Which I like relativity. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, but, but relativity is a little controversial. But what I thought is interesting, and this was covered like in the Crucible book, is that, um, so you have this relativity. There's, of course, just like today, a lot of attacks on it. And you have, of course, uh, at this point, a kind of a nobody in Germany, Adolf Hitler with one of the smaller parties saying that this is just a conspiracy of the scientists and, of course, blaming Jewish people and saying that it's a psychological trap that they're putting on normal Germans to make them think the world isn't real so that we'll never rise up as a country. And interestingly enough, it is the opposite in with Benito Mussolini, who's who's um, getting a little farther at this time in his career in Italy and his path to become a dictator. Um and he sees it the opposite way, that something like relativity is freeing so that there can be a world of fascism uh, because, uh, you know, all things are relative. You know, both, of course, are misinterpreting what the theory is there yeah. in 21. There's, there are scientists who, like, willfully misunderstand what it means. Like, you have, I think there was a fellow named Maxim. I don't, I, I, he was the brother of the scientist, of the inventor Maxim, who invented the Maxim gun. And he got very mad that, relativity was a thing because he said that's my idea because i said back in 1890 that everything is made out of atoms so everything's basically the same (laughs) but there is there is something involving einstein that definitely has to be mentioned it might be my favorite anecdote which was uh sometime in i guess april of 1921 uh thomas edison made huge news because it emerged that if anyone wanted to work for edison's laboratory they had to pass a test, which consisted of scientific and political and geographic questions that were uh, devised by Edison himself. And they're, they're sort of like a bad game of bar trivia. They were, they were questions like, 
what's what's the percentage of magnetite and magnetite ore and how many states border Kentucky or uh, what is the, what is the population of Melbourne Australia and he said college these college kids today are stupid they don't they don't know anything because they <laughs> they did so poorly on this test of this and the newspapers the newspapers went nuts with this. They were like doing stories about Edison tests for weeks afterward. A reporter, a wise-ass reporter, comes to Einstein, who is visiting the United States at this time, and asks him, uh, I guess what he calls an Edison test question, which is, what is the speed of sound? And he trips up the great Einstein. Einstein doesn't know. Einstein's response is, is a very forthright, I don't know. And then he explains... I'm not in the habit of memorizing such things. That's what I have books for. (laughs) Yeah, well, that goes to exactly, exactly that. We have been talking to John Blackwell. Now, check out his Twitter, this day in 1921, at 100 Years Ago News, at 100 Years Ago News. You're going to get stories, and you can just go back uh, forever on 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 this Twitter feed and see very interesting stories that really say a lot about today's time. So, John, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Bruce. Love your podcast. I want to thank John Blackwell for coming on today. And again, you can check out his Twitter, at 100 Years Ago News, at 100 Years Ago News, for John Blackwell's This Day in 1921. And yes, next year he's going to continue, he says, into 1922. I want to make a mention, though, of something that, that I learned. Um, so John Blackwell is a listener of the program, and he was referred to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics by his friend Joshua Tanzer, who I recently uh, followed on Twitter and was talking with. And it's just an example of how a program like this one that's a little weird, just an odd-sounding name, <laughs> I was told by the Columbia Journalism Review said, you know, the name doesn't do it justice. And, you know, maybe it's right. I, I look at it both ways. Some people look at the name and say, oh, that's kind of funny. Let me listen to this. And other people might be turned off by it. Who knows what's going on out there? But one thing I know is that podcasts, especially today with so many mega corporations getting into the podcasting field, podcasts need to be spread by word of mouth. And so I thought it was great that uh, John actually started listening from a recommendation from Joshua. So, you know, take that lesson to heart. Is there someone that you know that likes history and politics that might benefit from my history can beat up your politics? Let them know about it. All I have to do is find us on Apple Podcasts, if that's where you go, or Google, or CastBox, or Podcast Addict. Stitcher, whichever one you want to use. We've got such a large archive just on there now. There's over 400 episodes just on the what's free and available to you. So that's a great place. Otherwise, refer them to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com.